Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and from the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In Jesus' name, dear confirmands, family and friends, and congregation, I'd like you to imagine yourself in an awkward conversation. You're in a conversation between a white cop from Atlanta, a black man from a bad neighborhood in New York, and a liberal white woman activist from suburban Baltimore. I came across this radio interview on a conservative talk show where they were interviewing this TV producer who brings together people from different backgrounds with different views and asks them really tough questions on controversial topics. In fact, he's grown it into an entertainment venue where he'll bring together 50 to 100 people from all different backgrounds, all different views, and ask them tough questions. He'll show different tags and op-eds from online sources, and he'll put them right alongside of each other, one from Fox News, another from CNN. And then he'll ask them what they see. Now, how would you feel about this whole story if I were also to tell you that this event organizer was a gay, liberal, Muslim, a Pakistani-American immigrant? Now, if that's even possible, this is a real person. And we put all of these thoughts together in these words, and you already have a picture. What is that conversation going to look like? if you've already made up your mind. What this organizer has found is that in the end, no matter how much people differ on particular questions and topics, in the end they actually have more in common than they do differences. And his point is to get people to think beyond screens, to think beyond what they see on the screens in front of them. Because the way that advertisers and marketing works is that content online is fueled by one thing and one thing above all else, fear and anger. <clears throat> the things you click on are meant to produce more things that will fit with the things you're afraid of or the things you're angry about. And it just keeps growing and growing down that avenue. But what is different here is when you have to sit down with these people that you imagine on the other end, face to face, and you take away the personal agenda. Suddenly people are vulnerable. And so he starts this interview with a white cop, a black man, and an activist woman by asking this question. Tell me one story about your childhood when you received your first item that you owned as your own? So you guys can think about that question. What's the first time you had something you could really call your own? And it turned out everybody had a very similar story. In fact, all their stories seemed to be about a bike. In fact, there's a lot we have in common as we look back on our lives and the experiences we've been through. One of the goals of our confirmation class is that over three years, 
you would learn not just what to think, but how to think. That's one of the main goals of my class, is not just to get you to remember things that you've memorized, but to remember how they work, how God works. And that's really what discipleship is about, right? For these nine students, this is only the beginning. It's only the beginning of their life. This is a launching point for them to go out into new things. And especially for six of you who have grown up in a private school, you've been very guarded from thoughts and different views. In fact, most everybody thinks generally the same way in our school, which is a great blessing. But at the same time, we have to remember it's preparing you for something that's coming. I read a very helpful book once on this particular subject. It was called Failure to Launch. And the author was examining that life period from 14 to 24, we call adolescence, and what happens during that time frame. And if you have high school students, I really recommend you read this book. What it showed was there's an identity crisis. And the last couple years have only increased this amount of anxiety and depression in this particular age group. What is happening? Now, if we only guard our young minds to tell them what to think before they have to think, and where they must be, and when soccer practice is, and everything scheduled for them, they don't learn to face tough choices, to fail, and to learn from it. They get to the end of high school, and it feels to them like they're jumping off a cliff. And they don't know if there's going to be a landing down there shortly below to safely catch them or not. Maybe I should just stay where I'm at a little while longer. Maybe I shouldn't really get out of the safety of my childhood, and then we might end up being a 30-year-old man playing video games in mom's basement and still acting like a child. It happens. That world can be scary. What happens to these nine students when they go out and face those conversations between people that disagree, that have different views of God and truth? Today we are reminded in the text of the path of discipleship. And the path that Jesus is laying before the disciples is an opening of their minds, not a closing of it. So we read, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it was written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. 
In chapter 24 is the resurrection chapter. Jesus has risen from the dead, and he's making his first appearances to his disciples. And in this chapter, three times you have repeated this key word, opening. You first have it appear where Jesus is opening the scriptures to the Emmaus disciples as they're walking along the way, but they don't recognize it's Jesus. So before he ever shows himself, he opens the scriptures to them so that they can see things in the past, building off of the Old Testament that they never saw before. How the Christ needed to suffer before he would be crowned king. The second time, it says that he opened their eyes. And then finally, when they sit down to break bread, they can see who he really is. They see Jesus in their present time. And finally, the third time is the opening of their mind, where he opens their mind then to see what's coming, to see how not only it fit together in everything that leaded up to this point, but how it's also leading them into the future, that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should go out as a witness to everything Christ has done into all the nations. So he takes them and opens up the past, he opens up the present, he opens up the future. He opens it all up to show that it's all about him. This, in fact, sent whole cities into an uproar. People were losing their mind about this message. It was a message that the natural mind would never have considered it, and when it confronted them, they didn't want to consider it. They would not accept it, and they said they've turned the world upside down. And they threatened to kill them for what they believed. It comes from Acts chapter 17 and a city in Thessalonica. The city of Thessalonica, Paul had just come to for the first time in Acts chapter 17, his first time into Europe. And immediately he goes to the synagogue. He goes to the place where there's people that he knows that already know the things he knows about the Old Testament. For three consecutive Sabbaths, he preaches. And it says that he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Now, does that sound familiar? This language is very similar to what Jesus, in fact, in Luke chapter 24, is doing. The word for proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ is the word for opening. Paul was opening their minds. He was opening the scriptures. He was opening things up for them to see, to demonstrate who God is, what he is doing. And his message was that the Christ must suffer and rise from the dead. Well, that sounds just like what Jesus said. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? All of this is opening up the scriptures. Paul is showing the connection between the past to now what's going on in their present lives. So this open-minded discipleship begins and moves forward always with the scriptures. 
to know the scriptures first is key. The reason we memorize passages is so that the scriptures will go with you for the rest of your life. No one can take that away from you, even if they take away your Bible. It's similar to the classical model of education. In the classical model, a little bit like how Jewish children were raised, it begins with memorizing. It's the grammatical stage, the basic elementary skills of repeating. You learn your ABCs, you learn your math tables, and you learn your Bible passages, and it lays a foundation. But the classical model says that by sixth or seventh grade, these children are ready to move on to higher levels of thinking, critical thinking. They're beginning to ask questions and they should be taught to seek answers, not just what that matters, but how. So Jesus lays down the scriptures. These disciples have known the scriptures, but they haven't seen what it really means. They've memorized passages from the Old Testament, but they haven't had their minds opened to face the tests that are in front of them. Just reciting scripture is not enough. When Paul came to the synagogue, he met a lot of people who knew the scriptures. In fact, most of the people he was talking to were Jewish people who had grown up with the scriptures their whole life. And yet, when he brought them this radical message, they had already made up their minds. They had already closed their minds and said, God couldn't do that. God wouldn't do it. That's not how it works. They're turning the world upside down. So they cast him out, threatened to kill them. Imagine getting inserted into a debate between a Jewish believer and a Gentile person on the topic of how to worship God in those days. Trust me, it would be more contentious and more violent than anything we get on social media. How should we worship God? The disciples are gathered in Jerusalem to receive a blessing, just like you're receiving a blessing today. And Jesus blesses them. He opens their mind so they can see how he is a part of everything in their lives. All of the scriptures in the past, what's happening in the present, and where they're going in the future. It all ties to the story of Jesus. And Jesus teaches you how to think. They're being sent out into the world as witnesses. And like those who are being confirmed, he wants them to look ahead. He wants them to look ahead. He's sending them out, not just to his own people, but to all the nations. It says that forgiveness should be preached to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and we are one of those nations included in that message. In fact, if we were left to ourselves, we would be no different than our pagan ancestors. Yes, all of us, unless you might be from Jewish descent, have descended from some sort of pagan nation that worshipped idols. And how easily are we going to return back to those origins? In fact, there's a new paganism all around us, and it's why a lot of our parents are worried for people like you. We think perhaps the better thing to do is to keep them home, to tell them what to think, 
but we're realizing now is the time they need to learn how to think, not just what to think. The world needs people like this, people that are ready to go out with the truth and be ready to stand in those conversations that are awkward and with love and conviction speak the truth. What I've learned as a teacher is you have to let them think. And they're not always going to think what you think, by the way, if you haven't figured that out yet. They're, in fact, already, even if they're that little, are probably already not thinking what you're thinking. In fact, I was reminded of that as they all prepared for their testimonial this morning. I gave them these list of questions. The answers were in the catechism, so I expected them almost word for word to be pulling the answers out of the catechism. However, they didn't all do that. And one of the questions was to give an example of how people despise the word of God. And you could go to the catechism and you could quote some passages that almost word for word says, he who hears you hears me, he rejects you rejects me. But one of the students picked something completely different that I would have never thought of. And he referred to hurting and murder. And then he quoted a passage from Exodus about how Pharaoh had enslaved the Israelites. And at first, I thought, well, well, that doesn't fit under the third commandment. But I let it go. I thought, well, he's done his best, so I'll, I'll let it play out. And then after the second or third time of hearing, I said, wait a second. That is exactly what the third commandment is teaching. What was Pharaoh's sin? It was despising the word of God. It was hardening his heart and not listening, which exactly fits in a way that I wouldn't have thought of, but this student did. You have to let them think, and sometimes it might not sound exactly like what you think, but work it out with them over time. Listen. So I have one more project planned for them, and it's to visit another church next Sunday. And I do this about once or twice a year. We go and we visit another church. And it's to observe how other Christians outside of our own church worship. And this Sunday, we're going to be going to an Assemblies of God. Now, do you think they're going to see something different at that church than they see here? They're going to see something very different from what we see here. What should we think about all this? How should we respond? Now the point of this is to see how other Christians worship and to learn to think critically. Well, why did they do that? What choices would I make? Because I'll tell you that in 10 years, you're all gonna be making those choices and your parents and your pastor won't be there to make all the choices for you. These are things that cannot be learned through books or op-eds or screens, but it involves real people, and those people in those other churches are real people. They're not just people on a screen. If they're a gay Muslim Pakistani immigrant, he's a real person. He grew up and he wanted a bicycle just like you. There's a lot we do have in common. And what we have in common more than anything else is our common fallen nature, our experience with sin, the trouble that infects our lives, 
the way the devil gets after us. And we all have in common a God who has answers to those problems. A salvation that Jesus is opening up if we would just let him. In the end, you kids are going to grow up and think for yourself and make choices. But not because we said so, but because the Lord has opened your mind to understand the scriptures and to see things as he sees things. To see him for yourself as he breaks bread with you today. That Jesus is really here, he's really risen, and you're receiving his own body and blood. This is what I see. A little group communing together, loving each other, and Jesus, our risen Lord, in our midst. A congregation of open-minded disciples living for our Savior together. Open our minds, Lord, to the scriptures so that from the scriptures we can see as you see. Amen.